Hey fam, welcome to another episode of the Myths That Make Us podcast. I'm your host, Eric Gotze. The point of the Myths That Make Us podcast is to help you, the listener, and the guest when they come on, identify the conscious and unconscious stories that they tell themselves about who they are and about what the world is. Because I think that, no, I believe that I know that the story that you tell yourself drastically affects the life that you experience. And so I want to help people become conscious of what that story is. Hey fam, welcome to another episode of the Myths That Make Us podcast. This episode is brought to you by my journaling course. If you are interested in making journaling a habit, uh, this is the dopest thing that I know about. And if you enjoy just how weird I get with these podcasts and with the type of stuff that I talk about, I'd highly recommend that you go check it out. Um, it's the first official product that I have made for my company, Cathedra, and I'm proud of it. And I think that it will help you if you are like me and you think that maybe the most important thing in our lives are the stories that we tell ourselves. So go check that out if you're interested. Today's episode is with Katie Ball. Um, she is one of the most tapped-in women that I have ever met in my life, and you are going to experience that truth on this podcast because of how honest and authentic her responses were and how she showed up. And you know it's a good episode if we cry, and we cried. So I hope you guys enjoy. Thank you, as always, for offering your attention and your love. I truly appreciate it. And I fucking love doing these. Love y'all. Namasteezy. Katie, welcome to the podcast. And before we get started, um, it has been a little while since you and I talked. How would you introduce yourself to people? Like, how would you want to frame how people are going to begin to project all of their bullshit onto you, even though they don't know you? <laughs> well, isn't that the question of a lifetime? Um, one, I hope they don't project any of their shit onto me, but Sorry about that. <laughs> I get that that's kind of how life goes down. Um, it has been a while since we've caught up. And what I've really discovered about myself in this time is that I seem to be kind of this aggregator of resources. And a lot of, I think, what my superpower in teaching and sharing with the world is going to be is in how to do recalibration from the perspective of energies and frequencies. And that does involve some emotions. It involves some things that you might refer to as kind of like cult knowledges around like human design or um, talent dynamics profiling tools. But kind of an aggregator of all of these different resources that exist that can help a person understand how to navigate their energy in the journey of waking up and becoming more conscious. Fire. So let's get into <laughs> it. Let's say okay. that you just got done doing something that gives you flow. And then you and I met for the first time. And I said, hey, who are you? And what do you do? <laughs> 
Oh, wow. This is such a tough question for me. And it always has been because it's difficult for me to define that. It's like, how do you actually name your magic, if that makes sense? Because like, like, I know that you're really great at that. I think like at articulating things about story and how powerful that is in all of our lives. And I'm somebody that I think part of my medicine is going to be like publicly living and sharing the process of what it is to refine and refocus down to that like one thing that you can say that you do that like serves the world. 100%. So right now you're an alchemist. You're refining. Yes. Yeah. I'm getting, man, it's crazy since the the virus and everything has happened, how quickly it's happening right now since I'm quarantining alone. Um, I'm loving that aspect of this, but the the last, I would say, four weeks have been really incredible for me to kind of be honing in on what it is that I can actually do to help people. So I have set questions that I like to ask, but fuck it. Let's just go off of the intuition. What that. have What has these last <laughs> couple of weeks been like for you? Oh, my gosh. One, and this is something that I love talking to you about too, is I am having something that it's not dreams and I don't know that it's visions, but it's like when I close my eyelids and I would even compare this to being on like LSD or something, but it's like I can see these insane colors and faces and shapes (laughs) like moving around. And I don't know what they are and I don't know what they mean yet. I can just tell that like if you believe in things like downloads, which I kind of do, like it it feels like at a cellular level I'm being changed in some way. Um, so, 100%. And what's yeah. interesting um, is why don't you consider those visions? Because I do. Do you? I think because – I haven't talked with anyone about it yet, actually. Or the well, first... let's go. Hey, <laughs> yeah. The first, the first time I ever had something like that was at Burning Man last year, um, and I had taken some. Somebody called it Polly, which I thought was Molly, but then it was like I started. It was like I was on a roller coaster ride in the universe of color in my eyes or like in my mind. And that's just what, that's what this feels like, but I'm just, you know, going to bed. And so it's pretty cool. (laughs) It's pretty fun. Yeah. The way that I think about it is, um, so you have your psyche and the psyche is the totality of all the psychological things that can happen. And in the psyche, you have your conscious mind, you have your subconscious mind, you have your personal unconscious mind, and then there's a collective unconscious where all the weird shit is. And when you do psychedelics or when you get into a hypnagogic state, which is that in-between state between being awake and falling asleep, and when you dream, all of those are when contents from either the personal or the collective unconscious start to stream into the conscious mind and the way that they manifest are images and emotions or like emotional feelings and they come symbolically like dreams and like psychedelics 
And it sounds like what you're talking about is one of the emanations of that process. You said it so eloquently. <laughs> of course. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, I love it. It's, it's fun. It's also like, I don't think scary is the word, but anytime it's like you're tapping into these new energies and they're at higher frequencies, the, the like variance between where it first comes in, where you integrate it can always be a little bit precarious, I think. Um, 100%. It's yeah. non-ordinary states of consciousness and the ego is the fucking king of ordinary states of consciousness and it scares it. Um, I want to kind of give people an idea of the psyche that they're hearing talk. So I have some questions that I would like to ask. And the first one is, how would your best friend describe you and what you do in the world? That's much easier for me to answer. I love this question. I think that they would just say that they feel better when they're around me or that I can see something in their inner child that needs to be healed. Um, and I, my observation is that friends or just random people seem to cross my path when they are in a place of transition but they don't have any context really to understand what's going on. And I can't fully explain what I see yet, but it's it's almost like I'm looking at the art of the transformation that's happening behind all the content and the story. Um, and I think that being able to see that, like being able to read the clues and the signs and to see like, you're going from this level to that level. Um, but to just hold the space for somebody to kind of step on the other side of the bridge or dip their toe in the water is how I would describe like what it feels like to be in an experience where I'm really just trying to hold that anchoring space for somebody to kind of explore their own unexplored territory. Sounds like you're a guide and an alchemist. Got it. How would your closest romantic partner, either um, from the past or now, and you can pick, how would they describe who you are and what you do? <laughs> Hell on wheels. <laughs> <laughs> um, I haven't had a long-term relationship in a long time. Um, and really not in the last two years since a lot of this stuff has happened. So how can I answer this question? Can you ask the last part of it again? How would they describe who you are and what you do? But um, because you haven't had a close romantic partner in a while, you can go with the most recent one, or you could just say that, uh, you know, it's just not the right question to ask. I think it's probably not the right question to ask. Heard. Um, I got yeah. more. Okay. I bet you do. Yay. <laughs> How would your father describe you and what you do? Hmm. It feels like these questions are perfectly ordered to draw something out. Interesting. Um, my dad... 
would say that he doesn't know what I do. (laughs) My dad too. Yeah. Yeah. Like he, um, man, he, he wants to support me and I know that he loves me and that he feels proud, but he doesn't have the language to necessarily articulate that. It's, if I want to understand that he's proud or he believes in something I'm doing, I have to look for these tiny moments where I can like read it in his face or feel it in his heart. Heard. How would your mother describe you and what you do? Oh my God. She thinks I'm like the best shit in the world. <laughs> 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 like most moms, right? Yeah. Um, she would say that, I'm a healer. I'm a teacher. I'm a light worker. I'm just the embodiment of joy. Um, and that she's known for, I mean, my whole life that I was just going to do something really special. Um, and that I, I give people hope. I think I hear her say that a lot. Whatever your relationship is to the divine, how would that thing describe who you are and what you're doing? I am here to make people feel safe and to assist in the great awakening. Beautiful. What do you recall as your first memory? (laughs) (laughs) (sighs) So I know I've talked about this before and I think that it's my first memory, but it's, of my parents actually having an argument and uh, my little sisters and I, I remember kind of like ran and hid because we were afraid. And um, I don't know if you're into human design or anything yet, but I'm not familiar with it, but I'm glad that you said yet because you already know. Yeah. 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 (laughs) It is absolutely incredible, Eric. You will fucking love it. And it has helped me so much. Um, but for the context of the question, I learned that both of my parents are on the emotional wave. Me and my sisters based on when we were born are not. And so the way that my parents interacted was very explosive and that scares the shit out of people that, um, that aren't on the wave. They don't understand it. And I'm aware right now that one, I'm probably saying that as a protection for my parents and what I'm saying right now, but also too, because I think that it's really valid for families and people to know that there's things kind of like beyond therapy and emotions uh, that kind of are drivers and how we resonate with different energies and frequencies. Um But in this one instance, like, I just remember feeling like I had to do something. I had to do something because they were fighting. They were scared. And I had nominated myself as, like, the hero, the one that was going to stop this chaos from happening. And I, like, ran into the living room where my mom was crying and my, like, dad was yelling. And they were – it must have been the first fight they ever had in front of us, um, Cause I remember it felt new and I was just terrified and I went in there and I think I said something like, dad, you're a bitch. Or like, I didn't, I remember in my little mind just feeling like, how do I make it stop? How do I make it stop? I have to like 
say something that will get their attention. And so that's just what came out of my mouth. And in that moment, I believe is when I felt the first separation from my father. Oh, painful to talk about. Um, because it wasn't, it wasn't what I thought was going to happen. I thought I'll do this and then there will be peace, right? It was like uh, he um, responded to me as if I was an adult. Um, it was a yelling not directly at me but at the whole situation. Um, and I can't even remember what he said, but it was probably something about this family or whatever. And I immediately, I was just like stuck, like frozen in this nervous state system of like, oh God, what did I just do? I just fucked up the family or, and like, I've left like my childhood behind me. It felt like, cause my sisters were representative of that and they were still like hiding under the table. And then I'd made contact like with the parents and the older people. Um, but they just like rejected me. So now I'm in this weird middle land where I don't belong to anyone or anything and it's just me. And what do I do? An interesting thing that I find is that people who kind of find their way eventually become exactly the type of person that would have been able to heal whatever their first wound was. And I can see that in you that, um, the primary relationship, the first memory involved being able to anchor and hold people's emotions in a way where they can communicate. Because that's one of the things that I see you do very clearly and very well. And so the first thing I want to reflect is thank you for being so honest about that. And then um, I guess the question, so there's a couple of things that come up, but I think a really important question, it's one of my favorite questions to ask is, what do you remember being the first story, either in a movie or in a book or from a TV show that really captured your attention as a child? Little Mermaid. So I'm going to ask you to do um, a little acting and imagine that you're either a mother or an aunt or you're babysitting somebody that you really care about and they're asking you for an, a bedtime story. And you're going to tell them the story of the Little Mermaid. And I want to present the caveat. It's not about telling the story accurately. It's about feeling into how you would tell the story to a smart 10-year-old who's curious. Um, and you're going to use that story as the framework. Could you take two to three, maybe four minutes and tell us the story of the Little Mermaid like we are, the smart 10-year-old uh, asking for a bedtime story? This is beautiful and will probably elicit some emotion. Um, how healing. <sighs> <laughs> My heart is beating so fast. I would say... Um, that there was a beautiful mermaid that 
lived under the water and that was a daughter of a very powerful man. And she loved to sing and she greatly, deeply desired to be free. Um, And in order to gain that freedom, she had to find out (laughs) in kind of some difficult ways. Um, I don't know. I don't know the words to this. Eric, this is a tough question for me. Um, Do I get to start over? (laughs) Of course you can start over, but it's tough if you think about it. But if you feel into Mm -hmm. you're sitting at the edge of the bed talking to this beautiful, curious child, and they're asking for a story, and there is no wrong way to tell it. Okay. Okay. I would say much more magically. Um, once upon a time. Once upon a time. <laughs> yeah, there we go. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> once upon a time, there was this super badass, bright-haired, big-eyed, just dancing free, magical mermaid that lived in one of the most beautiful kingdoms in the world amongst beautiful mermaids. She collected amazing artifacts. She was curious. She was playful. She could sing. She made friends with all the fish, and she was different. And Sometimes she wondered if that different made her like not belong with some of the other people, but um, she deeply, deeply desired to be free and to learn about the world and to experience love and experience things that were different even from the way that she was made. And she was so desperate to experience these things that one day when she met this <laughs> evil underwater witch named Ursula, um, she actually gave up her voice um, in order to find her prince and to be loved. And in doing that, she lost so much of her light. And she learned in a really hard way that... I don't, I can't do this. Oh my gosh. <laughs> it's you are doing Because I'm it. thinking, I'm thinking. And I'm also, I think, just trying to remember the story. Um, right. And I think that that's where you're getting stuck is there is no story to remember. You know how to tell a good story. You've already told half of it and you know how it ends. So just let your heart or your intuition fill in the rest. <laughs> Okay. I would say that in the end, everything turned out okay. She found the love that she so deeply desired. She made peace with her family. She got to understand that she could be who she is and have what she wants and experience the love that she so deeply desired and still get to be with her family, still have contact with the people in her kingdom. And she 
became a beautiful woman that stood on her own two feet and found her prince and sang and played in the sand and lived happily ever after. (laughs) So the beautiful thing is that when people have to retell their favorite story as a story that they're telling to somebody else, I find that it pulls something out of them where what they do is they tell their story. And I know that you can see your story in that story. And what's interesting is the part of the story that you had a hard time articulating is the part of the story that you're in now, but you know where it is leading. And you know that where it leads is by being your true self, by speaking your truth, even though you were afraid to at the beginning in order to get love, you know, to not shine your light as bright as it possibly could be, you know that it's going to work out. But you're in the midst of that part of the story where you weren't being able to feel into what exactly the trials and tribulations and transformations were in act three of the four act story, but you know what act four is. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And the losing the voice part too felt um, kind of like where there was, it felt like being in a whirlpool of like, wait, where am I? (laughs) So I'm curious, for your life, what was your Ursula moment where you decided, either consciously or unconsciously, looking back at your life now, that you began to inhibit your voice, your truth? What was that moment for you? It might have been that first moment, the one that I, the first memory where when I used my voice, I got hurt. Does that make sense? It does make sense. And so I'm curious, how would you tell the story of, because you clearly have found your voice now. So I'm curious, what, (laughs) how would you tell the story of the transformation from the girl who thought that she couldn't speak to, you know, the girl that dances now that speaks? Oh my gosh, I would say... Girlfriend, this is going to be tough. This is going to be rough. This is going to be challenging. This is going to take everything that you've got. You are going to die in so many ways. You're going to cry. You're going to hit bottoms. You're going to lose everything that you have. And you're going to discover that it was never anything that you needed. And at the end of all of this, you are going to look at yourself, you'll look back, you'll be in the present, and you will be so proud. You will be so proud that you kept all of the promises that you ever made to yourself and that you can see how divinely influenced everything in this life has been leading up to this moment. You can see the purpose in your pain. You can see exactly how all of these failures, these moments of deep regret and loss and rage and grief have served you and opened you up to experience the most immaculate, divine, beautiful feelings of connection that you've ever dreamed were possible. And that the fairy tale that you have always believed in really is true. It's just that it's lived inside of you. That's it. Love. So I want (laughs) to dig into the details a little bit. So um, 
going back to when you were a child, what do you remember being the first thing that you wanted to be? Like, what was your first dream about, you know, either the job or the life that you imagined? Like for me, um, when I was like eight or nine, I wanted to be a comedian, but I realized that really what I wanted is I wanted people's attention and I wanted them to laugh at me or laugh with me. Really, I, I wanted people's attention. And then once puberty started and I started playing basketball and I started being attracted to women and feeling all the hormones pulse through my body, I wanted to be a basketball player. <laughs> and then basketball was eventually taken from me um, as it was meant to be by injuries. And then I realized I wanted to be a psychologist. And so I'm curious, what was the first thing that you remember wanting to be and how old were you? Oh my gosh, I was probably like three and I wanted to be a famous singer. At the time, I wanted to be a country singer because that's the only music I'd ever really heard that my parents let me listen to. Um, but I also remember getting a cassette tape of Celine Dion when I was six years old. And I just love her to this day. And it was the thought of being on stage and sharing and just making people happy. Oh, and getting to do that with my voice was something that just came so naturally to me. I mean, just seemed like heaven on earth. <laughs> yeah, I can see the aerial there 100%. Now, what's interesting is most of us, once we hit puberty, our dreams change or who we want to be starts to change because we start to get a little bit more feedback from the world about what wrongly or falsely we believe is possible. But then also with hormones, we we become almost a different person. Uh, when you were in high school, what was your dream of wh who and what you wanted to be? It became a doctor or like a biomedical engineer of some kind, something that was very prestigious and smart sounding. <laughs> 100%. Yeah. And now it sounds like you're on a third path. Um, what is it that you feel called to be? Or the question that I think really gets to it is, whatever our dream was about who we wanted to be in high school, that dream tends to die at some point. And it can be very hard. It can be an acute dying, like me tearing my rotator cuff, or it can be a slow process of realizing this is not the path. Um, how did that dream transform into <clears throat> the dream that you have now about who you want to be? And how would you articulate the dream now about what type of person you want to be in the world? So mine was a slow, slow drip. Oh my God. It was, I went to college and I did pre-med. I took the MCATs. And when it came time to actually apply, I just couldn't do it. I just couldn't do it. Like I filled Why? out the applications. It just, it made me feel like my body needed to vomit. There was something about, one, the amount of stress I'd already put myself under being a perfectionist and a scholar and all of that in school and trying to do everything for everyone all the time. It was just like, no, my body just said like, no, but I, I didn't have the awareness to know that at the time. I just judged the shit out of myself and was like, what the fuck is wrong with you? Why can't you do this? And I remember I went to Europe for a few weeks and came back and then just went back to my like crappy 
a job at a hospital um, and for like another year and just stayed in denial because there it was like I was by the doctors, but I wasn't actually going to med school. And so I entered this like horrible stage of kind of just existing, but having no context for what was going on. I went completely blind and I honestly probably stayed in that hole for another decade um, because what happened, yeah, yeah. And what happened after was going and getting a job in oil and gas. But again, there, the motivation was, oh, I'm probably just afraid of going into debt. Like I had awareness around financial scarcity issues in my mindset. But the idea was like, okay, I'll work in oil and gas. I'll make a bunch of money. I'll get mailbox money from investing in oil and gas wells. And then I'll be able to pay for medical school in cash. And then I won't feel so stressed. So I'll be able to actually go. That was like what my theory was on it. Um, But then a decade later into that career, none of that had happened. And I had no goal setting routine. I didn't know anything about vision. I just kind of put my head down, worked, made money, got to that six figure range and like bought a house and was, I was so aware that I wasn't happy, but I didn't know another way to be. And I got really stuck. (laughs) And what I find happens in people's lives is that Um, In order for that dream to die, uh, they have, you know, their dark night of the soul. They have their on the bathroom floor crying moment. And for you, what was that acute low point that allowed you to finally give up that story that you've been holding on to for 10 years? Can you zoom in to that moment and tell us that story? Oh, God damn, Eric. Yes, I can. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Let's just go in for it. And man, it's like the tenacity that I so appreciate about myself that I have really didn't serve me (laughs) in this case, you know? Um, I had to have like kind of three really fucking hard hits at once. One was my career ending in a fairly traumatic way. Um, The second was not too long after that, um, there was an event that came up with the Gestalt training people and the therapist I was currently seeing where um, she was also seeing my boyfriend. And I had done this like 18 month program and it was so intense. And we just like purged all this emotional stuff and we're at graduation weekend and I've invited my parents, my boyfriend that I've been in a terrible five-year relationship with. And I start to freak out. And for whatever reason, this rubbed up against my current therapist stuff. And she basically said like, I can't hold that space for you here. And inside of me, I remember feeling like, wow, the one person that I've been able to trust in the world, like when the going gets tough, when I actually need her, can't be here. And and I still didn't allow myself to break in that moment. 
everything in me wanted to hit the ground and just throw the most massive tantrum like a two-year-old, but I held it in and I smiled and I made it pretty for everyone. And then (laughs) what really caused me to hit the bottom was the ending of this five and a half year relationship that I appreciate for what it was and what it taught me, but I had no business being in. And I knew that on day one, but again, I didn't know how to sit with myself yet. And when that ended and I didn't have anybody else to look at, I didn't have anybody else to blame. I didn't have a job. Oh man, this is tough. And in the process, I also had um, lost all my friends. And um, (laughs) do people usually get emotional like this on your show? (laughs) (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I know this is part of like your beautiful medicine, but um, I feel like I'm crying a lot. And (laughs) so it's perfect. (laughs) Thank you for saying that. Um, It just, there was a moment when uh, my childhood friend had since uh, moved back to Austin and is married to a recovering alcoholic. And he, he would always say to me, like, Kate, I think you got the ism. Or like, you just, you have all of these symptoms. Um. And he showed me a list of the, I think it's, they call it the laundry list. Um, And if I remember correctly, there's 14 traits of adult children of alcoholics and dysfunctional families. And I had every single thing on the list. Damn. Yeah. And I remember thinking... It was like if every cell in my body could breathe, like all of the breath just left at the same time. And I didn't know what to do. Like all this pain came rushing in and I thought, oh my God, like, oh my God, why didn't anybody ever tell me this? Like, don't they know I would have done it right? I would have fixed it if somebody just like told me I didn't know. And I felt so much guilt and it was, it was so hard to feel like so many people were doing something to me or like so many people had hurt me. Like, how could it be that I was the one that was really hurting myself? Like, how do you want me to take on more accountability? (laughs) Like, I have no space for this pain right now. And it was just, it was so hard because I didn't, it was literally like coming off of a drug. And what I realized was that my drug was these long-term relationships And this was the first time I was ever going to have to sit by myself having like arguably nothing and just surrender. And I didn't even know what that meant. I didn't, he kept, um, 
my friend's husband that gave me that list was just like, just surrender, Kate. I'm like, tell me how. Just tell me how. I swear to God, I'll fucking do it. I don't understand how I'm not doing that. Please help me see this. And it was just, it was weeks of like, my grandmother um, who passed away a while ago had given me this pieta that somebody gave her from Israel. And that was the closest thing that I had to creating any kind of like meditation or ritual like place in my home. And I remember I just sat it on the dresser next to my bed and I would just, when I got out of bed over the next like two weeks, at least I think it was, um, I would just hit the ground and pray and like write out my fears and try not to be crazy. And it felt like I was dying. It felt like I was living in acid. It felt like just what it must, what I imagine it feels like to come down off of a drug, like an an actual addiction. And it was hell. It was, it was hell. Um, But it led to opening, right? It's like, it, it feel, it felt like there was a fire inside of me that I so desperately was wanting to escape by running or traveling or, you know, grabbing a glass of wine with friends. Um, but I was going to have to actually just let it burn this time. I, I, I saw so clearly that I didn't have a choice that I couldn't lie to myself about it anymore. The first thing is thank you for sharing that as honestly as you did. And I know it's going to be medicine for people. The thing that comes up in me is that we acquire a story about how we ought to be in the world, mostly unconsciously from the relationships that we had with our parents, from what culture tells us about how we should be, and then from our first close primary relationships. And most of us, just because of the way the human unfolds, is they're not in their authentic story. And so this inauthentic story is almost like mud or a type of thing that calcifies around the truth of who you are. And the longer you live that life, like the denser the calcification is. And there's two ways to basically start to break through the calcification. One is you consciously choose to do the things that you're afraid to do that you know that inner whisper is asking you to do. Or the other one, the flood has to come to you. The dragon has to come to your village and it has to fucking destroy you. And the longer that you were in the inauthentic life, the longer you have to sit in that transformation period that literally is a dissolving. It's a destruction. It's a breaking of the false story. And I I truly believe that hell and heaven are real, eternal, psychological places that we can be in depending on how we are relating to life. And hell is the metaphorical name that we give when our old story completely breaks, but we don't have a new story yet. And that's the belly of the whale, you know, the part of the hero's journey that is in almost every story. And also the the thing to recognize for people is every story that you love, the hero goes through that part. The hero has this point where like everything that they tried failed and they're low. And the reason they're a hero is about how they respond to it afterwards. 
and every story, every myth, every movie that you love, the hero has that moment. Yet our ego wants to tell the story. I don't want that. I don't want that in my life. But it's why I think the hero's journey is the most adaptive story to layer on to how we tell the story of our lives because it it lets you know that actually the dopest part of the story is how you respond after the fire, the flood, the destruction, the hell. And one of my, it, I think it's one of the most healing things that people can hear about on this podcast is how first what people's fire or flood moment was and really feel the truth of the pain of that experience. And you did that perfectly. And then I think that the most healing part is how did they respond? And so you began to tell us how you responded, which was to submit to the force inside of you through prayer every day for a couple of weeks. But I'm curious, what was your slow crawl out of hell? <laughs> the questions, I mean, the words in that question so accurately describe the feeling of the crawl out of hell. Um, it started with, I actually did a little bit of the 12-step program. Um, the further I got into it, it, it felt like it didn't resonate with me anymore. Like I was ready to move on fairly quickly. Um, but I did the like, write out your fears, write out your resentments, look at all of these things. Um, and I think that that really helped me actually see the way that I was being manipulative because I had all these unmet needs. Um, and I think it's worth pointing out too that like at this point of my breaking, I had done a year and a half or two years of therapy. And the problem was I didn't have a vision for my life. And so, so much dredging up of the past and all of the chaos of the emotion created this, it illuminated this beautiful awareness that I have of myself and other people. But because the only story I still had was fear, I used that awareness to find more things to be afraid of, to make my box even tighter. Yeah. <laughs> so undoing all of that has been, it's been a lot. And I remember the first thing I did after I was doing kind of a part of the 12 step program for a little bit was I was just not moving. I wasn't doing anything. And so I made up that comfort zone challenge that I did for myself, which just basically became like a point of leverage for me to give myself an excuse to go back and do all the things that I never did that I wanted to do, which looked like going back and taking a ballet class or making a free listening sign and sitting at a coffee shop or riding a bike or like doing something that I was like, I would never do this, but you know what? I'm saying yes to everything in my life right now. And for me, one of those things was signing up for Burning Man, which ended up being an incredibly transformative experience in my life because 
I got to see what it was like to exist in a place where there is no judgment and there is no shame, where I don't have to like be embarrassed or responsible for the way that like me living in my light or expressing my feminine sexuality lands with or impacts another person. Um, I went topless at Burton Springs, which was just nuts for me. It was like I went and do, <laughs> I went and did all the things that my old self said I could never do, and it broke the matrix that I was in. And I don't think I realized how important that was going to be for me later on because. I started to understand, I could start to see the construct in my head. I could separate from like the judgment and the fear and under, like understanding how to embody that was very different than having the concept of it that I like read in a book or learned from somebody. It's like, we can spend a lot of time in that healing arena, but until you actually go do the stuff, Yep. Oh man, you have no idea. <laughs> it's so different. <laughs> and the thing that comes up in me that uh, just fucking resonates so deeply because it, it is also what happened on my path. And you can, again, you can see it in all of your favorite movies. There is an initiation period where the hero is purposefully put through something that they don't believe they are capable of doing, that by doing it transforms them into the hero that they will need to be to face whatever the biggest obstacle is at the end of the movie. And for us individually, those are initiation rituals. And because we live in a culture that's not giving us initiation rituals, we are responsible for creating our own. And your comfort zone challenge is literally an initiation ritual that I believe your higher self gave to you, your ego said yes, and it fucking transformed your life. And like for me, the first one that I consciously chose that changed my life was the daily pages from the artist's way and writing three pages every day, no matter what, until the first journal was filled up and it was a big ass journal and it changed my life. And the reason it changes your life is because it pushes you beyond the point that you thought that you could go. And when you do that, the matrix breaks because the matrix is the ordinary world story that we inherited unconsciously from our parents and from culture. And once you break that for the first time, your entire conception of the world changes because you realize, oh, if I do hard shit that I'm afraid to do, I literally can transform what I think the world is and what I think is possible. Yes. Yes. It feels like taking a quantum leap or something. You can just like, you can take that image that you have outside of yourself and do something scary. And then just, it's like you crush time or something, or you like pull it into you and you can become and transform yourself into something that you didn't even believe was possible. Like right now, it's so powerful. And I, it's interesting too, Eric, like I think it, I've heard you mention this in some of your podcasts before too, about it really being about decreasing the amount of time that you spend in suffering or like the amount of time and hesitation because yeah. 
once you do it once and then you do it again and then you do it again, it's like you start to see that this is just the way that it is. And you can like tap into the rules of the game and you learn that when you want something and you have this like passing thought about something that scares you, it's like, just do it. Just do it right now. 100%. It's the difference between the hero that is forced to be a hero by waiting for the flood of life to come to them and the hero that knows he's or she is the hero that chooses to leave the village whenever they feel the call to go face whatever the next dragon is. And the one that transforms faster and that can have more transformation cycles in this one precious life that we have that can get closer to the potential of who they are is the one who consciously chooses to leave their comfort zone, which is their ordinary world, which is the mythical village or castle that they leave to go into the dark woods and they go confront the thing that they know they're called to do, that they're afraid to do over and over and over and I truly believe that the highest call that each of us have in this life is what percentage of our potential can we manifest before we die? And the one who waits for the dragon will not manifest as much of their potential as the one who chooses to go after it every time they feel the call. Yeah. Yeah. That definitely, definitely resonates with me. Um, it's and it brings tough. up a question. Well, yeah. Okay. 100%, and that's fucking, you know. <laughs> It's part of the game. Um, what is the current dragon that is calling you, a.k.a. what is the vision that you are currently interested in manifesting? Like, what is your future that you want to move towards? I want to be – I constantly have this feeling of, like, being, like, a Viking warrior – but a little more feminine, maybe like mixed with Wonder Woman or something. (laughs) (laughs) But like I have this shield and I have a sword and I just have this feeling of like, get behind me. And it's starting to feel now like those are young people. Um, And the thing that I want to fight here – I don't know if fight is a great choice of words, but... The dragon you want to go dance with. Yeah. <laughs> Let's dance with this dragon. Um, is this, is like the source point of what is going on in families. Um, I think that the more people that we can wake up, in my case, I think it's going to specifically be women because every woman that I can help awaken becomes a mother and then can impact and hopefully help raise conscious children Amen. Um, or, you know, really just not do the things that cause them to become unconscious. <laughs> um, and I think that that's just going to be my work in the world is to denormalize all of these concepts that are truly dysfunctional that we have so widely accepted in society. And I really feel like that will be to be like a leader of a movement. I constantly have this vision of like being dressed in white and speaking in front of like lots of people. And I wrote down uh, this year that something that I would like to do in my lifetime is like win the Nobel Peace Prize for like having. Really? 
I didn't know that. (laughs) That's amazing. But yes, like having that big of an impact and the way that I'm doing it right now is like I've started my YouTube channel. It's the Wake Up With Katie show where I'm just recording videos of me on my awareness. I'm interviewing people and I'm I'm profiling their energy profiles and I'm writing profiles for them and saying like, what is your gift that you want to share with the world? So like for you, for instance, I'm writing you a profile too, by the way, Gatsi. Perfect. (laughs) Yeah. Here's this amazing like journal resource and listen to like everything that this guy says and everything that he writes and like creating this like central, like magnified place of light where hopefully it's shining so brightly that it can attract all of the people that want to begin and maybe they just don't know how to. I want to aggregate those resources and like make it really easily understandable that like the way that you articulate so beautifully, there are very clear steps in the journey. And I just... I always think like if somebody had just told me this when I was a child, you know, like I could have played the whole game right the whole time. (laughs) Like, you know, we didn't have to waste all this time with all these things. And yes, there would have been a journey, but like you're saying, it's about how much can we get done here in the time that we have. And yeah, and there's four things that come up for me that, um, and the reason I cut you off and I apologize is because the right. last one, it feels the need, um, I want to share it now is you did play the game perfectly, that the person that you are going to become, you could not have became if you didn't go through literally every experience that you went through and that there is no other way that you could have played the game to get to this point now. So it's already been perfect. And I know that the perfectionist in you will also love to hear that and simultaneously hate to hear that because she, she <laughs> won't believe it. But I know it's the truth. The other three things that came up that um, I want to share is the first one that you touched on about the dragon that you want to fight with or dance with is that what the psychological research shows about what makes people the most resilient to suffering is one of the key characteristics is Pick the biggest problem in the world that you would feel passionate about dedicating your life to trying to improve. And you've done that intuitively. And I want to share with people, whatever your vision for your future is, pick the biggest problem in the world that you feel passionate about giving your entire life to improving to whatever percentage that you can improve it. The two other things that came up that I think are interesting is one of the ways that you described Ariel is that she collects artifacts. And that's literally what you're doing mm. with this human design thing. So I just wanted to pluck oh that God. piece of awareness yeah. for you. And the other <laughs> thing is uh, to be the Wonder Woman with the shield and the sword and wanting to give a story to young girls to help them become conscious mothers. That feels like the most mature manifestation of the energy that was in your first experience about you wanting to go protect your sisters and you went forward. So you've alchemized that. Yes. Thank you for that reflection. Wow. And so (laughs) one of my favorite questions to ask, and I think it's the best question to ask at the end is if you imagined your, imagine that you have arrived at the last day of your life 
and you've lived as long as you've needed to do to fulfill all of your dreams and all of your goals and everything has worked out, not exactly how you planned it to work out, but you were able to achieve your dreams and your goals and it's the last day of your life and you know that you're going to die peacefully in your sleep at the end of the day, how would you want to spend that last day and who would you want to be there with you? So the, I'll tell you what comes up for me is an image where I'm sitting on the edge of a very high cliff um, and I'm overlooking like just mountains and lush beauty and I'm feeling the breeze blowing with me and it feels like there's a large tree behind me to the left. I'm not exactly sure what that's representative of. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> earlier that day, I had just had the most beautiful time being present with my husband and my children. And I took time to look back on what I had created and how what I feel like one of my children is, is kind of like the planet. How are the children of the earth doing? Because I was here. And, um, in my perfect fantasy, or <laughs> yep. they are all happy. And they're, unimpeded and no everyone understands that there's no reason to ever do anything that doesn't make you happy or that you don't want to do and that it's okay to be who you are um and I've created some kind of like planetary system some kind of conduit of collaboration where it's like all human beings understand that we are connected and that we are all on the same team and I feel like it is safe for me to leave because I have ensured that my family and the children who are here will be safe now without me and if you got to leave a single note to your grandchildren before you go to bed that night, what would you write on that note? Just that I love you. <laughs> I love you. And if I've done my job right, like you, you already know that I will always be available to you. Like trust, trust that you have all of the answers, that every pain that arises is meant for you and that life is meant to be beautiful. You are here to expand. You are here to create and you are here to experience love and every depth of the human soul that this life has to offer and please remember that your energy impacts those around you and that you can always come back to nature. You can come back to 
the mother earth. You can come back to yourself to feel at home. And I love you. Just have a fucking kick-ass time while you're here. (laughs) (laughs) Katie, you are a light. I really appreciate how authentic and vulnerable and open you were because these questions are not easy and you fucking showed up. And I hope that people listening will follow you and that you will do a comfort zone challenge during the quarantine and that they will join you. Oh, man. Okay. I can do that. (laughs) I can definitely do that. Yeah. (laughs) Thank you so much for coming on, Katie. Yeah. Thanks, Eric. It's been really fun.